So the downsides of the, the sort of you know, strong designer model is that if they don't know what they're doing, it's going to be a complete disaster. And they're not really designing for their user base as much as they're designing for their impression of the user they would like to have and what they think that user wants. You know, what would you like this home on the web to be? So thanks for coming, everyone. Uh, Alex, I'm so fortunate to have Alex here uh, talking about Firefox. I'll give you a quick bio. Uh, Alex uh, went to uh, MIT and uh, got his bachelor's in cognitive science and then went on and uh, got his master's and worked as a research assistant at MIT Media Lab. And uh, he did a lot of artificial intelligence <coughs> stuff and basically uh, was trying to uh, take human factors that we all know about the world and uh, teach computers these uh, these pieces of information and um, he got his master's and then he went over to Mozilla and uh, started working on Firefox uh, UI and uh, he's here uh, to share his uh, experience at uh, Mozilla and uh, how he designed Firefox so uh, let's start by just uh, you know tell us uh, how you started off with Firefox, the process, and uh, kind of lessons learned from it. And we have a whole bunch of questions on uh, Twitter stream as well as uh, the comments for the blog post there. Okay. So, and, and right. we're going to try and keep this about 20, 25 minutes. Right. I know everyone has uh, jobs and things they're doing, so keep it focused so that you guys can, can get out of your 20, way. 25 minutes, five minutes questions. <laughs> yeah, so I guess um, I'll talk a little bit about the sort of design philosophy uh, that Mozilla employs, and then... Um, Show some Firefox 3 work, uh, which everyone's, of course, familiar with, uh, but I'll talk about sort of the principles that came into play in making those decisions, and then I'll show some Firefox 4 stuff quickly, and then we'll try to take questions. Um, and if people want to try to come in more, I know it's <laughs> sticking out the door. We're really at capacity. Um, all right, so I'd argue there's really sort of two approaches to UX design. Um, and for the sake of attribution, I'm, I'm stealing most of this from Don Norman. Um, so, uh, the first approach that everyone's familiar with is, um, you know, basic user research and user studies. Uh, things like focus groups, uh, using one-way mirrors, um, saying, okay, these are my users, I need to study them, right? And uh, in this, you try to find out what features they want, what they find interesting, what they find confusing, you try to understand their behaviors. Um, we also see this outside of UI design with things like movies, or your focus grouping movies. Um, and then, sort of in complete contrast to that approach, you have the sort of uh, the designer who has a very particular vision of what they want to make. And they're not really designing for their user base as much as they're designing for their impression of the user they would like to have and what they think that user wants. So um, in the first case, we see this uh, as sort of the Microsoft model, uh, where you have companies like Microsoft that have these huge user research groups. And uh, they'll do lots of user studies. They'll bring people in, and they'll, they'll ask them what they want. And then the second is sort of the, uh, the, what you could call the Apple model, where you have a team of designers that are uh, basically working in secret, uh, designing the thing that they think is perfect. Um, not necessarily with a, a lot of direct interaction with their users. Um, of course, they get that as soon as the, the product is released. But because they're doing things in such isolation, they really have to focus on core principles. And uh, they have to be really good at what they do. So, I mean, you also see the same thing with movies, where, like, with focus grouping a movie, you can know that the movie's going to do pretty well in the marketplace versus having a really strong director who's just making the movie that they want to make, and it may or may not do well in the marketplace. So, 
you could argue that um, engaging a lot of users is a good way to mitigate risk. Um, and in the, the other model of having this sort of you know, strong designer or strong director, um, you can have huge successes and huge failures. So you can be more successful than you would necessarily get from engaging with the user base. So if you look at these two on a spectrum, um, so, you know, so the downsides of the, the sort of you know, strong designer model is that if they don't know what they're doing, it's going to be a complete disaster um, because they're not getting the sort of feedback they need. And the downsides of engaging the users uh, directly is that if you're not careful, they can influence you in negative ways. So you can average their favorite colors to gray. Um, everyone's going to want a particular feature, and you can say, well, people want these features, and you throw them on the product, and now you have this really complicated thing. So um, to look at sort of how Mozilla approaches this, we're more on the side of uh, sort of the group of designers that focus on principles and designing the thing that they want to make for users as opposed to directly engaging. Um, the difference, though, is we're doing it all in the open. So we have you know, this you know, complete transparency where people can join in with the community. And uh, this is a, a painting by um, Kamara and Melamed. Uh, it's called America's Most Wanted Painting. And what they did here is they, they sent out surveys to people. Uh, people might be familiar with this. And for people listening to the audio podcast, I'll post the slides so you can look at it. It's truly awful. Um, basically, they, they put out surveys uh, to ask people what they enjoyed seeing in paintings, and they created this, and it's awful, and that was the, the overall point. Uh, so this is like the you know, canonical example of design by committee, right? And in open source, you have the same thing, where you have you know, everyone throwing in their opinion of, of what they think uh, the design should be influenced by. Um, but it's really important that they remain engaged because you know, that's really the power of our model, and that's how we fuel all of our work. So sort of the, the way we deal with this is by trying to focus on core principles, uh, trying to basically get everyone around the same types of things that we're doing in our design um, and understanding you know, what makes something good or what makes something bad. Uh, another way we deal with this is giving people a lot of freedom to explore. So the phrase, that would be a good extension, um, it's sort of a happy way of saying there's no way we're going to put that in the main product, but you know it's sort of interesting, so you can uh, make, a, make an extension and then you and your friends can use it. Um, and it's, it's actually interesting that the, um, the extension model that Firefox has kind of grew out of solving these debates uh, where everyone wants to sort of you know, take the product in their own direction. And, um, and that's sort of why Firefox just initially had such a good extension infrastructure, was dealing with that, um, trying to make a very mainstream product. So another important thing is to elevate contributors who know what they're doing. Um, so example of this, here was the original uh, logo for Phoenix, uh, which is the first name of Firefox. And you know, it's, it's okay, but it's, it's not that great. And uh, some visual designers showed up and they said, you know, Phoenix will never be a mainstream product if it looks like that. And uh, everyone kind of knew this was the case. And th these guys were really awesome visual designers. It was uh, Stephen Garrity and Stephen Desroches. Um, wrote some blog posts about this. So we said, well, you clearly know what you're talking about, and you're right. Congratulations, you own the problem. Um, it's now your job to fix this. Oh, and we have to change the name as well. So they came up with some sketches. Uh, here's the original sketch, the, the Firefox icon. And then uh, pretty quickly after this, they put out an open call for people to try to render it. And uh, John Hicks did the rendering, and then we got the, the Firefox icon. So even something as central to the product as the application icon actually emerged out of this open source community. So, you know, saying we're kind of following the Apple model, but it's really a lot of people engaged in this. Um, it's, it's not the case that anyone can influence the product, but if you, um, you have really good ideas and sort of are able to prove your ideas are good, then you can get into the community of people that are sort of steering Firefox in the direction that we want it to go. Uh, 
so I'm going to show a couple quick things about Firefox 3. Just checking the time. So the first concept I want to talk about is flow. Um, this is a psychological concept um, by um, Chris, uh, can't even remember the name, uh, Chiklokzamahaya, I believe, and people will laugh at me listening to the podcast, so I got that wrong. So it's, it's kind of hard to describe. Uh, the best way to describe it is it's a cognitive state that you get in. So the best way to describe it is to sort of tell you about it, and you'll probably remember yourself being in it. Um, so you know, imagine you're, you're driving a car, and you know, you're driving pretty far, and there's a lot on your mind. And over time, um, the interface of the car will just kind of blur out, and you sort of forget that you're driving. And you start thinking about all these you know, creative things that are in your mind, and you're still driving very safely. You're still operating the car fine, but you're not like actively, consciously focused on driving the car. Um, and this effect happens you know, all the time. This is one example. Um, musicians get this effect with their, when they're playing their instruments. They're not really thinking about the instrument. This just becomes an extension of themselves. Um, we also see this with playing video games. Um, you don't really think about the game controller after a while. You just get engrossed by the game. So this yeah, cognitive state is called flow. And uh, it also can apply to software applications. So we were thinking, you know, as the user is you know, moving between various applications in, in Windows and in OS X and other operating systems, you know, how can we create an environment where really the interface of Firefox is going to fade away in the same way that those other things fade away? And the user is going to sort of you know, enter this, this you know, state where they're not really focused on um, you know, actively thinking about the interface, but they're focused on the tasks that they're doing. So one of the ways we tried to approach this is really just kind of meshing with the surrounding operating system in terms of its aesthetic and its interaction design. Uh, because if you do anything that's too different, even if it's different in a good way, you're going to start pulling users out of flow, and they're going to start thinking about the product instead of thinking about what they're doing. Um, and then sort of the, the opposite side of that is to try to be uniquely Firefox, which is like completely contrary to trying to mesh with everything else. Um, so this was sort of the big problem we were facing, was how do we create something that isn't going to like draw attention to itself um, while still at the same time being uniquely Firefox? So um, looking at the seven visual variables, basically what we did is we just chopped them in half. So uh, value, color, and texture uh, were assigned to integrating the surrounding operating system, whereas shape, position, orientation, and size were assigned to being uniquely Firefox. And um, in terms of the, sh the shape, we came up with this as just, you know, almost like an ideogram. So this, this uh, shape that you see, and then when you recognize that pattern, you say, okay, I know what product that is. And then we applied that uh, with the various sort of materials that the operating systems are made out of. So in OS X, it was made out of metal, on Vista glass, on XP, some form of plastic, I guess. Um, and uh, although we later then made it more shiny because people were complaining. Um, but the idea was that um, so it's, it's recognizable, but also it just fits with everything else that you're using. And um, we also did you know, just some real minor things with you know, sort of you know, looking at the various types of arcs that you see in operating systems and applying that into the design as well. Um, and what we got was uh, basically a product that was passing the, um, the test of if you see it uh, in low definition on television, you can still say, oh, hey, that's Firefox. It's kind of dark in the room. So. But either way. Um, so it's, it's not drawing too much attention to itself, but it's still identifiable. And here's uh, some images of Firefox 3 where... Yeah, everything pretty much lines up, um, but it's styled um, to match. Uh, the next thing I want to talk about is this notion of visual hierarchy. Um, and really, one of the best examples of this uh, is the TiVo remote, which is a fabulously designed thing, um, where the most common actions get the most prominent treatment. Um, things are grouped very nicely. And 
uh, really just all sort of flows together in a really good way. And of course, pause being one of the things you do most often, that's the main control. And uh, then by contrast to this, the uh, PlayStation 2 remote, where it's really hard to see, but uh, the, the buttons are aligned in a grid. Um, it, if we had one in real life, it would be equally hard to see. Um, and uh, because the buttons are aligned in a grid, you don't really have this notion of visual hierarchy. You don't, um, it's to some extent like the play button is larger, but um, you don't really have any way of remembering things. So there's really sort of two aspects to this. You know, one is physical. How quickly can you visually target uh, the thing that you're trying to find? And then the second one is cognitive. Um, you know, if you don't even have a remote, but you're on a whiteboard, can you, like, draw where the button is that you're trying to hit? Can you remember where that button is? So um, first, in terms of physical, if you actually blur out the TiVo remote, uh, you can still see the, uh, the pause button. Um, you know, this is commonly called a squint test, basically trying to model really low-level human vision, like the first thing you're going to see um, so that you can acquire that target. Uh, here's a similar thing applied to Firefox with the back button. Um, again, it's passing the squint test. And then the second part, in terms of cognitive, can you remember where the control is? Um, this is kind of a notion of landmarks, where you're defining control positions relative to other control positions. And because the layout is non-uniform, you can sort of think of those landmarks. So like, I know that slow on the TV remote is directly south of the pause button, whereas on the you know, PlayStation 2 remote, it's somewhere in the grid. And you, know, you can see a similar thing with maps, um, where you know, it's really easy to find a country in Europe versus, say, trying to find a congressional district in Wyoming. Um, you know, as soon as you have that kind of non-uniform thing, you have something to mentally grasp onto. Um, seeing the idea sort of applied to web browsers, where uh, here we've taken off the actual glyphs on the controls and just replaced them, um, you still sort of know what the various controls are in Firefox, even without that additional help of the glyph, uh, versus you know, just having uniform in the, the bottom images is Mozilla there. So then, um, sort of the, the final big thing with Firefox 3 was the notion of efficiency of use. Um, I was actually working on the, the filtering interface of the bookmark sidebar, which is like as, as minor as you can get in terms of design work. And I'm thinking, ah, why, why am I working on this? No one's ever going to use it, and it's really hard to use, and it's not that efficient. And then um, that night, I was listening to a podcast. Uh, it was This Week in Tech, and uh, Leo Laporte was talking about how he loves Quicksilver. And of course, everyone loves Quicksilver. It's the best thing ever. Um, and actually, I, I know the guy who made Quicksilver. Um, he was at CMU when I was uh, working there briefly. And then it just kind of dawned on me, like, Quicksilver is, is really kind of a unique application because it's one of the few cases I can think of where it sort of molds its behavior based off of user behavior in a way that's good. Um, so like, we see this done sort of incorrectly in some cases. Like, Office tried this with their menus where various menu commands in Office would you know, fade away over time. And that, most people found that frustrating. But what Quicksilver does is it associates the letters that you type with the result that you chose. Uh, so over time, it gets more and more streamlined to your particular interactions. So basically, I just stole this, and I put it in uh, the location bar in Firefox 3. Um, and designers should not, not necessarily feel bad about taking good ideas that they see elsewhere and, and bringing them into their products. Um, and since I, I knew uh, Nicholas as well, maybe that makes it slightly more appropriate. But um, <laughs> either way, uh, it's the credit for what then later was dubbed the awesome bar um, by one of the developers working on it. Um, and the BBC says it's a childish name, which I think, yes, it is a childish name. That was the point. Like, <laughs> we were joking. Um, uh, sort of the, the genius of the awesome bar is that um, it really meshes with user behavior, and it becomes faster and faster over time. And all those principles come straight out of Quicksilver. 
Um, here's the original mock-up. You can see we're actually still at the Firefox 2 UI when we're doing this. And uh, one of the, the sort of principles that we brought into Awesome Bar Design is this notion of selective visual variables. So um, when you look at sort of you know, a range of visual information here, I'll ask you to do a couple tasks and just go ahead and say done when you've completed it. So find all of the Ks. Okay. Find all the red letters. Yeah. So you see how that was a lot faster? Uh, or find everything on the left. Done. So um, going back to those uh, earlier visual variables, some of them are what we call selective. And basically what this means is you can process all the information in a single glance, uh, as opposed to having, doing, having to do a very sort of linear search as you sort of move your glance around trying to find things. And what's nice about using color as a selective visual variable is you can just sort of select on it, you know, just say, okay, I want to look at red things. And then sort of everything else just kind of falls away, and now you're just seeing the red things. So we brought this into the design of the results. We also see similar things with the Google homepage, where they're using different color for different types of information. So as soon as you select on the thing you're looking for, then you can just kind of filter on those and, and scan through them pretty quickly. And this is particularly important because we're putting both title and URL uh, in line in the display. All right, so uh, moving on quickly. I know we're short on time here. Uh, 3.5, I didn't really do anything uh, 3.5 at all. We, we had private browsing mode, which was great. Um, I said that we should use a masquerade mask, and that was my con contribution. I didn't even draw it. I just said that we should use one. Uh, I was working on a lot of other things. Uh, also, uh, we did an update of the Firefox icon for 3.5, uh, sort of streamlining it and modernizing it. Uh, 3.6, kind of similar deal. Uh, this actually hasn't been pushed out to 3.6 users yet, but we're doing out-of-process uh, out plugins. Uh, so if uh, one of your plugins crashes, you'll see a, a plugin uh, generic interlocking brick with a sad face, which is my contribution saying this should be a sad face. Um, which, one, which one do people like? I'm thinking probably the sort of 8-bit one, but we'll see. I like the one with the tears. Tears? Yeah, I'm going a little bit far, though. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> 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 Animated tears. We, we can totally do that. <laughs> Anyway, so that's 3.6. Um, uh, moving on to designing Firefox 4, which people will probably find more interesting. So um, we're doing a lot of work with uh, sort of matching both the visual and interactive design of uh, Vista and Windows 7. Um, we're also thinking about uh, finally putting tabs on top, which is something that we've been going back and forth on for many, many years, and um, somewhat matches the, the interactive design of Windows in that we're seeing similar controls with, like, the ribbon. Although in that case, it's actually the control strip that uh, has the tabs in that position. And here it's sort of combination of control strip and the actual content, and the control strip doesn't change. But sort of in a structural sense, it, it kind of meshes better than previous operating systems. Um, also, this notion of an application button, we're seeing that you know, become more prominent, this idea of sort of a very saturated, colorful thing that contains you know, main commands like saving and, and printing and things like that. So that's... Uh, Sort of Firefox on Windows. Uh, here we see it on older versions of Windows. Um, we'll probably actually just keep the menu bar, but it'll be customizable. So here we have the, the app button as well on Mac. Um, one of the new features that we're thinking about is we're going to have a locally hosted uh, home tab uh, in Firefox. And this will allow us to do a lot of things that we wouldn't otherwise be able to do with a web page that would otherwise violate privacy. So we know, like, the browser obviously knows a lot about your usage patterns. So we can do things like show you, you know, RSS feeds from sites you visit more often just automatically, uh, things like that, which we couldn't really do if pushing that information to the web. Also, it's just a lot faster to load if everything's local. Um, so 
not a great mock-up. Everything's blank at the moment um, because we're actually doing a design challenge right now through Mozilla Labs uh, for people to come up with ideas of, you know, what would you like this home on the web to be? And, you know, what should sort of the user's dashboard to the web look like when they first load the browser? And I think there's a lot of uh, really interesting, um, you know, space here for people to have creative ideas. Like one of the things that came through the design challenge that I really liked was, you know, we have geolocation built into the browser. Um, but, you know, we're using it for things like show me exactly where I am on a map as opposed to sort of more context sensitive, like, you know, here's the, the configuration that I want to have when I'm home versus at work and have the, the browser just sort of seamlessly, you know, mesh its interface uh, for the home tab based on your location, things like that. So um, really excited about this. Unfortunately, I can't show you more details yet, but this is something we're actively working on. Um, we're also looking into having app tabs. Uh, basically, you just take one of your tabs and you drag it over to the home tab, and it becomes this little persistent thing that will stay open all the time. And um, doing syncing of all of your browser data online. Um, so things are locally encrypted, and then we send that big block of encrypted data to our server. Um, and then you can you know, basically log into your browser and have all of your bookmarks in history and, and your entire browser experience from any machine. Uh, some other things is trying to completely reframe how we think about bookmarks in history. So right now, they're sort of given like a file system model, which is really kind of weird. Like everything's a little 16 by 16 icon. They're in hierarchical folders in various trees on the side. Um, you can drag them back and forth. And um, this, this doesn't really seem to make any sense because like, we have this entire interface of the web browser, which is designed for browsing. Right? We have all these great controls like back and forward in the location bar. But we're not really using those uh, specifically for the ta uh, task of, like you can go directly to a bookmark, but you can't go to like, a container of bookmarks. So this notion of you know, typing in something like bills, which is, say, a, a folder of bookmarks, and then actually navigating to it and seeing everything. When you click on something, you navigate forward. When you click back, you go back to this sort of meta page. And I think in the past, there's been some resistance to this because you're, you're sort of browsing something that isn't the web. I mean, it's going to be built using web technologies, but it's not like anyone can go to this place. But as we get something like Weave, where you can then log into the browser on any machine, um, these, notions, you know, these places do become sort of more universal, that after you authenticate, you can now sort of navigate this personal web that you've made. How did you, uh, how'd you get rid of payment in that? What's that? Uh, oh, is that is that one of your clients? Oh, there we are. That's because I knew that and was trying to. Because that's you guys. Actually, I use I use them to pay my rent um, <laughs> for a while. Um, so uh, we we have personas. You know, here's this uh, image of you know drawing the persona into the title bar, which is something that we try to do but haven't for technical reasons. Uh, personas in Firefox can't really see that one. It's Lady Gaga apparently. Um, so, um, and this also kind of goes against this notion of you know, really blending and meshing with the surrounding operating system. Like, this is super distracting, but it's distracting, like, in a happy way, because, like, the user chose that garish thing to put on their browser, and they really identify with it, and things great. So, um, so uh, people really love Personas, which is great. Um, for, well, yeah, I was, I was figuring this one wouldn't quite work on the projector. So, for um, private browsing mode, we're um, actually working on darkening the theme. Uh, so, you have this nice, very ambient queue. Um, that you're in private browsing mode. Um, you know, people have had various approaches. Uh, Chrome does this a little bit with the, the title bar, although most people uh, don't notice the change and just see the little guy. But I really like this because it provides this sort of like constant sort of sense that you're in this mode, so you don't have mode errors um, where you you know forget you leave it in private browsing mode and then you're not capturing you know all this great awesome bar data, that kind of thing. So um, I think we're probably going to move on to questions since we're nearly out of time. Um, although people are interested in staying, I can go through this set of slides. So, um, shall we alternate between internet questions and people in the room? All right. Uh, sure. Do you have? Uh, do you want to start with an internet question? Sure. Go ahead. Uh, 
well, here's the... Um, okay, so uh, let's do this one. Uh, how do you use... How do you see user behavior changing as interaction on the web matures? Good example of this is the change in behavior around the use of the back button now. The tabs are so common. Um, yeah, sort of introducing tabs in, in many ways kind of broke the back button because if you create a new tab and hit back, like it doesn't uncreate the tab for you. Uh, or you, um, you know, back kind of serves as like a universal undo in the browser, but it doesn't undo certain things, so you close the tab accidentally and you can't hit back. So um, I think some of those issues, despite browser, browsers having tabs for so long, still haven't been totally sorted out yet. Um, and also, I don't think browsers really support undo well enough at the moment. Uh, in terms of overall user behavior, uh, like we're seeing the web really mature into a full application platform. Um, if it's not there yet, it's definitely heading there, where uh, web applications have access to you know, you know things like uh, your camera and geolocation and all these sort of things that used to be sort of you know, operating system level access. So um, yeah, I think we're going to see more people just completely reliant on web applications moving forward. And a lot of our design work um, has been kind of tailored to that with you know the app tabs and a project called Prism, where you can um, take various applications and put them into your dock uh, on OS 10 or your start start button on Windows. All right, anybody? All right, in, in room question. In the room. Yeah, sure. Uh, what would you design yeah. out of Firefox 5? What's that? What would you remove from Firefox oh. 5? Um, have we added it yet? What would I like no, and then remove? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, there's lots of stuff I'd like to remove. Um, in general, I think we were a little bit um, too gung-ho with preferences. So, uh, it, like, people will get into debates. They'll say, okay, so the, the you know, interface should work this way or it should work this way. And unless you have, um, you know, everyone really grounded in principles so they can identify which one is the better way, it kind of falls down to, oh, everything's personal preference. I want A, you want B, neither of us is right. Um, or, you know, often in Firefox people will say, oh, my mom wants A or my mom wants B because this is about the, the, the novice user, right? So everyone's sort of, you know, arguing by proxy. But it's this, it's this kind of like, like, you know, just moral uncertainty where you can't say no. Like, A is good and B is bad. Like, like we need people grounded in principles so they can, can make that choice. But uh, if that doesn't happen and people are saying, well, it's all personal preference, then the big solution to everything is we'll just give the user the option. You know, like, I'll choose A, you'll choose B, everyone's happy. And then the downside is you create this super complicated product that has too many options. People can't really wrap their head around all of it. So I would, um, in terms of pulling things out, I would love, like to pull a lot of options out. Um, otherwise... Um, so it's, it's controversial, but I was never really happy with extended validation because it, it kind of creates this sort of two-tier web where you have, you know, like real companies get to be green and like startup companies, you know, that don't have, you know, all the infrastructure in place or don't want to pay the, the huge fees, uh, you know, don't get to be green. Um, but it's a hard problem because, you, you know, it's, you can't necessarily tell the difference between you know, someone just getting on their feet on the web and someone being a scammer. So... Uh, extended validation does serve a very important, very real purpose, but it's it's kind of tough. So I mean, one of the great things about the internet was like no one knows your dog, you know that, that famous <laughs> comic, right? Um, and that dog's doing business, you know. <laughs> so yeah, my dog made a lot of money that way. Yeah, right. Um, but either way, I, I take more of the ideological approach where I, I like the you know the sort of fact that no one knows your dog on the internet. Um, extended validation is kind of going against that. Yeah. So uh, with reference to touch, everything's mm -hmm. changed. How does the whole design implementation work for a lot of these things are not applicable, at least on mobile web, where I don't care about a back button as much, and I have multi-touch, and I mm -hmm. 
way different. Right? The whole experience is very different from having a mouse or a trackpad. Mm -hmm. And Firefox is mobile web relatively, I, I don't think Firefox is much on the Android and at least the iPhone, or maybe on the other devices. Mm -hmm. Are you guys looking at completely changing the way you design products for these touch devices or smartphones? Or uh, you know, does, does this paradigm still work there too, or no? Um, so, you know, some aspects of it work. So, like, you know, introducing the notion of navigating to your bookmark folders, you know, works everywhere. It's not very sort of, you know, literal at the interaction. Um, we have a, a project team, uh, the codename's Fennec, um, which maybe you've seen some of their work. Um, currently, we're running on MAMO and reporting to Android, and then uh, Windows Phone 7 series will be after that. Um, and, you know, like, with the desktop Firefox, you know, you saw this, how we were trying to sort of mesh with the interactive and visual model of all the different platforms. But they're all you know, pretty similar. You have a mouse and things like that. So it gets a little bit more interesting on mobile, where you try to really make Firefox sort of mesh with the operating system of that device, um, while still keeping you know, a couple things that are uniquely Firefox and, and uh, you know, trying to do things where it still feels moderately familiar. But in general, we're pushing more on the side of just meshing with the device. Um, yeah. And unfortunately, you know, Apple, of course, has their uh, various rules for what they'll accept in the, the App Store, which prevents anyone that's like building their own platform, like say the web, uh, from, from getting in there. So. Yeah, what I felt was just a personal experience that the browser really does not matter to me on the mobile thing. I want full screen space as much as possible, and the buttons and all are not relatively that important. Yeah. And I've got another Android browser on my phone, and they're trying to do the tab stuff, which Safari doesn't do. Mm -hmm. The design element to me is driven more by just my brain, the way I navigate the web rather than the buttons and the interface of the browser itself. Um, yeah, I think that's mostly true. Um, although you could make the argument that browsers are pretty similar structurally in the desktop environment as well. It's really the, the sort of little things about, you know, how does the password manager prompt you for remembering a password? How, you know, all these sort of like tiny interactions with the browser that you get a product that's really superior to another product um, through that sort of, you know, long tail of just getting everything right on those small interactions, which I think also applies to mobile, right? I think you could see a lot of, if we had an environment where people were allowed to be highly competitive <laughs> at mobile, which is, you know, obviously it's a very complicated ecosystem, uh, I think you could see a lot of competition there with products being much better than others. Yeah? So I got a confrontational question. Good stuff. Sure. Uh, a marketer, yourself, an engineer, all of uh, similar uh, stature in the organization, uh, who wins the argument <laughs> All right. So um, everyone's obviously on board with the shared goal of building the best thing, sure. right? Um, so what's can I, can I know what the argument is? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, you know, um, if you look at Google, it's more engineering-driven. Sure. Um, yeah, that's no, an interesting question. So, I guess uh, in terms of, like, say, just you know, start with engineer and design. So, because Firefox is so widely used around the world and, and it has to be a really mainstream product, um, it's the case that the engineers have good intentions. They want to design something that is really easy to use. Now, uh, sometimes that will, you know, come into conflict with you know what is easy to use and what principles are we trying to follow. But in general, there, there's so much conflict there. Um, in terms of sort of marketing entering into that mix, so obviously we want to promote you know sort of the brand of Firefox and, and everything that we stand for, um, but we also want to create a product that doesn't necessarily get in the user's way that often, um, which is kind of the opposite of say you know promoting our brand. 
Um, I think in other organizations, uh, I'm, well, I wouldn't say they get in the way with us as much as they get in the way in other organizations. Um, so to trash all of my competitors, um, <laughs> which I should not be doing in a podcast, but like, so like we we're talking about Flow, right? And how Firefox tries to be the best browser and tries to just sort of seamlessly mesh with everything else that you're doing. Uh, in you know both Chrome and uh, Safari 3 in particular on Windows, they were basically just kind of you know injecting the brand into the interface where you know Chrome is very googly and uh, Safari was looking like an Apple application on Windows. And you know Steve Jobs said, "Oh, this is a glass of cold water in hell." Well, that would really interrupt your hell experience, you know. <laughs> like, uh, so, I mean, so in, in a sense, like, yeah, in a bad way, because really focused on getting work done in hell. Um, the, or I mean, for a while, Safari was trying to sell you an iPod every time you opened it on their homepage. Um, so I think if you push the brand too heavily in something that is meant to be the user's window onto the web, I mean, imagine you got into a car and you turned the car on. And the radio started talking to you about how great the brand of car was that you were driving, right? Um, and web browsers are kind of like cars in that they take you to lots of places and you're in them all the time. So I think um, something that Mozilla does well is that we, we don't necessarily push our brand as heavily as, as we could. And that makes that is literally more user-centric because even though users love Firefox, they don't want to be constantly hearing about um, you know, how great Firefox is every day because they're trying to get stuff done on the web. So, so I'll take that. <laughs> well, we're um, almost out of time, so I'm gonna get uh, folks that really need to leave. Let them uh, let them go, but have folks that have questions just stay around. We'll probably stick around and ask uh, Alex questions. I know that folks are here on a lunch break or something like that. So uh, uh, if folks really need to go, okay. just uh, we should take some more internet questions for the yeah, podcast as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After people. So we have question. Oh, I got one more too. Okay. Yeah. Two more questions. Great seeing you. Uh, okay. Sure. Go ahead. I'll go. Uh, yeah. So yeah, kind of building out that you mentioned the the icon story too is a good example, of sort of like an open source design kind of process, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you threw the the homepage up there too instead of a blank. Right now, do you see? I mean, how do you see that process working back to creating a really good homepage experience on there? by opening up to the crowd like that? Do you see that's like a really serious part of how you're going to do your work going forward in designing application, or is it almost just like a sort of a fun thing in a way of engaging the community? Um, well, it's definitely not just, oh, it is fun, but it's not yeah. fun as in like, where it's trivial. Like right. the ideas that the community comes up with will likely be in the product and people will directly influence the product in that way. But it's not like we're going to average everyone's ideas right. together, like uh, the Komar and Melamed painting. So how um, do you get them like focused on those core principles you're talking about then? Um, so, well, in the case of like um, trying to decide between two options that have already been you know, presented or something already in the product, the core principles are really important. Uh, for things like the home tab, it's just pure creativity. Um, and it's always the case that a large crowd of people will be more creative than you are. Um, it's like before you realize this, it's frustrating because you're like, well, I've got good ideas. So I'm going to take on all of our contributors. And then, no, they always win because they're just you know, like they're so smart and there's so many of them. Um, that the role of the designer in an open source organization is more to facilitate that communication mm -hmm. than to be solely responsible for all of the good ideas. Right. But then how does the decision then happen? And what's the relationship like with the people who sort of contributed those ideas, you know, initially? How do you sort of keep them, how do you, do you need to get them bought in, or how, what do you feel like in terms of responsibility to them? Um, so, uh, usually, I mean, they'll be bought in if it's already their idea. Like, oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of course, they really love that. Um, so, uh, you know, the this is also something that's really unique about an open source environment. So it's not you know sort of top down where the designer says this is what we're doing, hope you like it. 
Um, it's very much more sort of bottom-up uh, across all open source where people are working on the things that they find interesting. Mm -hmm. So to sort of steer the product, you have to get people really excited about something being better. Um, so that makes sort of evangelism of all of the various right. design work you're considering really important. So it's kind of, you know, part being sort of, you know, like, uh, university HCI lecturer um, as you try to like explain the principles to people um, and also part you know just getting people excited about about the work and then also knowing um, what the direction that we should be going in. Cool. Luke, you had a question? Yeah, I had a question. Uh, many for-profit, non-open source organizations when they're designing products look at what their competitors are doing. They take mm -hmm. a lot of cues from the features and stuff. Uh, just looking at the slides you showed with it, I saw a lot of stuff that seems to be very Chrome-esque. And I'm mm -hmm. just wondering to what extent that sort of doctrine, oh, Chrome's doing it, should we do this, enters the conversation. Does that come from the open source? Is that come from the organization? Or is it just a good idea we should do it? Um, so, I mean, these, these ideas that you see in their interface aren't, like, super new, right? You know, anyone that looks at, like, a physical folder will see that the tab is placed on top. Uh, so in terms of considerations of that, it's really about... Um, so sort of how we want to position our product, um, I mean, going back to usability principles, um, like if you look at Jacob Nielsen's you know, 10 heuristics, what I think is really interesting about them is that some of them are opposed to each other. So you have like recognition over recall as an important principle, but then you have minimalism as an important principle. And it's really hard to achieve both, right? You, know, you have this sort of constant uh, tie. Also, um, external consistency and internal consistency is an important principle. Um, but that's uh, sort of against being innovative and and doing great new things. So you kind of have each organization choosing, you know, like which UI principles they want to put their chips down on and, and how do they want to, you know, craft the best thing. Um, in the case of Chrome, they sort of chose a different set. So we see them sort of breaking consistency, uh, which will hurt them with adoption, but also allows them to do which, what everyone knows is right. Um, so like placing tabs on top, um, while it has a couple efficiency problems that we're concerned about, uh, conceptually is Right. You know, when you hit the back button, you're navigating. Did anybody say, yeah. look, Chrome, did anybody in the organization or the open source community say, look, Chrome's got these little app tabs. We should have these app tabs. Uh, well, so. App tabs, like. No, and the reason it, it doesn't is because we've all sort of seen this set of ideas, like in extensions and talked about before. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, we're never, like, it, there have been a few cases where I saw something in a browser that was just like, wow, that's, that's a really, really good idea. Like, we hadn't thought of that. But often it's, well, we had that debate before. Here is the conclusion we came to. Were we right to come to that conclusion previously? Um, so it's not like, well, Chrome did tabs on top, time to copy them. It's more, all right, Chrome is um, for minimalism because they removed the, the title from the window, um, you know, choosing this path. We were focused on consistency and adoptability. Uh, is it worth us changing our strategy? Uh, to make that decision, uh, as opposed to just like, oh, hey, I hadn't thought about that. Let's copy it. Um, so. I was wondering what sort of pressures you guys but then, so, in that. So that was a very like interactive design answer. So then you have sort of the larger kind of like notion of brand and product, mm -hmm. um, where Chrome being sort of the most recent major release, um, you know, has great attributes. You know, it's very fast. It's very new. And its tabs happen to be on top. So people then attribute these sort of structural things to the interface to those aspects of the product. Um, so then for, like, for, that, for that notion of newness, you'd want to yeah, maybe put the tabs on top inside of a symbolic gesture of we are now uh, just as fast and, and just as new for our next major release. 
um, which is kind of illogical, but it's very sort of like this emotional, very brand-focused notion of why you would do these sort of structural changes. All right. That's going to get misquoted in the press wonderfully, by the way. I just want to say thank you to the reporter who takes that bait. All right, one more question. HTML5 elements like video, whether Firefox will provide browser controls and if you'll be designing them or if the video element and audio will rely on operating system or page-specific styles for controls. Yeah, so we have a set of sort of browser-provided controls just because that's like the lowest bar for people to put video up. Uh, we were very sort of uh, simplistic in the design. It's, it's all monochrome colors because we didn't want to impose you know, sort of our aesthetic on the page. Um, but then the great thing about HTML5 video is people really have access to the entire technology stack, um, you know, from simply skinning the controls to doing super innovative things like face recognition uh, with the video feed. So um, we'll give you ours, and if you don't like them, you can make really cool ones yourself, uh, just like you would make any other sort of web technology. Thank you very sure. much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.